welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Julianne Justo, and I'm a clinical associate professor at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy, and I practice as an infectious diseases pharmacist at Prisma Health Richland Hospital. As ID clinicians and educators, we frequently discuss the triad of factors necessary to help cure bacterial infections. One, antimicrobial therapy. Two, a functioning immune system. And three, the ever-present source control. Some of the toughest cases we see in infectious diseases are those in which source control is either not feasible or suboptimal. I frequently get questions about how to strengthen or otherwise optimize antimicrobial therapy, as it is sometimes the sole modifiable factor we clinicians can control. So in an effort to explore the topic of managing infections with retained sources, we at Breakpoints felt it would be great to discuss the current evidence and best practices in the space of prosthetic joint infections. Fortunately, we were able to entice two rock stars in the space for today's pod, and I can't wait to see what they have to teach us on this topic. So first, I'd like to welcome Dr. Laura Certain, who is a clinical assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases and an adjunct assistant professor of orthopedics at the University of Utah. Dr. Certain is also the current president of the Musculoskeletal Infection Society, and she encourages you all to submit abstracts to the MSIS 2023 annual meeting, which will be held in Salt Lake City in August 2023. I love a good plug, Laura, and you started off with a bang, so thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me and letting me advertise for MSIS. I'm really looking forward to this uh, conversation. I could happily talk about orthopedic infections all day long. Fabulous. We could too. We could too. Uh, and to further that discussion, next we have Dr. Nicholas or Nico Cortez Penfield, who is an assistant professor of the infectious diseases at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, where he also serves as the medical director of their OPAT program. Nico joined UNMC in 2019 and is one of the two core faculty in their orthopedic ID service line. His specific interest is in the management of periprosthetic joint infections and trauma hardware infections. He is also one of the co-founders and regular hosts of the Global ID Twitter Journal Club, hashtag IDJ Club. So many of you I know that are listeners to Breakpoints will uh, follow ID Journal Club avidly. I've also heard his passion to include cefadroxyl and heirloom vegetables. So Nico, thanks for joining us. I share your passion for those things too. Hey, Julie, thanks for having me. Uh, I am really passionate about antibiotic therapy and venom joint infections, and I've been looking forward to this talk and chatting with you guys for quite a while. Fabulous. So thank you both for joining us. Uh, you both have been all over the professional conference and podcast circuits trying to teach us all about how to manage bone and joint infections. Uh, Nico, I also loved your recent publication on the history of osteomyelitis. So that's not necessarily the focus of today's pod, but we'll definitely throw it in the show notes for our listeners. Uh, but I'll be honest, even after absorbing all of the material that you guys have put out, I still have so many lingering questions about optimal antibiotic regimens for bone and joint infections, especially prosthetic joint infections. So before we dive into treatment, I want to take a step back and actually begin with the basics. So help me understand the pathophysiology of bacterial prosthetic joint infection, organism growth dynamics, and the establishment of that ever pesky biofilm. Right, well, that is a huge topic in and of itself, um, but we'll do our best to outline the basics. And I would say it's worth noting up front that we understand biofilm 
mainly in the in vitro setting and then extrapolate a lot from that to the clinical setting. So the vast majority of research on biofilm as it relates to PJI and other orthopedic infections is done with Staph aureus, but in a laboratory setting. So how, it, how well it applies to infections with other organisms and how much of what we see in the lab is actually going on in the human is not totally clear, but it does seem to fit with our experience treating these infections. So in general, the first step in biofilm formation is bacterial attachment to the bone or prosthesis. It's worth noting, again, that foreign material is not required for biofilm formation. It forms just fine on bone itself. So you can have a biofilm in osteomyelitis, and that is thought to be why osteomyelitis in general is so difficult to eradicate from the body, or at least one reason. Uh, staph has surface proteins that can attach to components on the bone of the bone extracellular matrix, such as collagen or fibronectin. And then once attached, it's either to the bone or to the prosthetic device, it forms a little microcolony and then starts producing the biofilm matrix, which is the goo encasing the bacteria and protecting them from our immune system in antibiotics. So, and by goo, I mean polysaccharides, proteins, lipids, and DNA. And now in the lab, a biofilm can develop within hours to days. So while we like to think that in an acute infection, so for example, within a few weeks post-op, the biofilm has not had time to develop or mature yet, it's actually not so clear if that's true. Regardless, bi bacteria biofilm are hard to kill for a variety of reasons. So one is that it's difficult for the antibiotics to penetrate inside the biofilm. There's some very old um, in vitro data that maybe some antibiotics can do this better than others. How well that actually applies to the human setting is unclear, but it is thought that some antibiotics like rifampin, um, which will come up later in the stock, are better than others at penetrating inside the biofilm. Another reason bacteria are difficult to kill is that bacteria and biofilm are often more tolerant of antibiotics than their planktonic counterparts. So planktonic would be like the free swimming uh, bacteria. You can simplistically think of it like the bacteria in a bacteremia are planktonic bacteria and the bacteria that are stuck to the bone or the prosthetic joint are biofilm bacteria. But anyway, so um, bacteria biofilm are typically more tolerant of antibiotics than their planktonic counterparts. And these antibiotic tolerant bacteria are often called persisters. So that may be a word that some of you have heard of is the persister phenomenon or persister cells. Um, this idea actually goes back to the 1940s when a physician, I believe it was with the military, um, named Joseph Bigger was doing experiments treating Staph aureus grown in the lab in culture with penicillin. And he noticed that if he had like a flask full of staph bacteria and he treated with penicillin, most, you know, 99.99% of the bacteria would die, but not all of them. And if he grew back the, a new flask with the surviving bacteria, their MIC to penicillin was still low. So it wasn't that they, he was selecting for resistant bacteria. It was just that some of the bacteria survived treatment with penicillin despite being sensitive to it when you measured their MIC. And so he called these persisters um, and he hypothesized that it was because they were in a sort of a non-dividing or a metabolically inactive state and that therefore the antibiotics couldn't kill them. Um, and he also hypothesized that maybe this was why osteomyelitis was so hard to kill. So actually the idea of persisters and the idea of that being why bone and joint infections are difficult to eradicate kind of go hand in hand and have for many, many decades. Um, so the idea being that if bacteria in biofilm or in these chronic 
um, infections are not actively dividing. They are more tolerant of antibiotics and therefore difficult to kill. So regardless of how much of that applies and is truth, um, the main idea is that it's really hard to kill bacteria that are stuck to bone and hardware. So the best approach is to physically remove as many of them from the body as you can. That was great. I totally agree. Um, I think that if there's one thing that we want you to take away from this, it's that biofilm is a huge problem for source control. Um, it's really sticky. It's microscopic. It's hard for our surgical colleagues to know they've gotten rid of it with simple debridements. And that's why we have so much trouble eradicating any sort of infection that involves a retained uh, prosthetic device. I also really like the way you phrase your opening, because I do think there's a disconnect between how we teach about device infections and what we actually know about biofilms. So for example, when I was a fellow, I definitely heard that hardware infections due to staph, but not necessarily other bacteria, need to be treated with rifampin. And that's because, you know, staphylococci produce biofilm. And that's just not true. I mean, staph produce biofilm, but so do streptococci, so do many gram negatives in Canada. Um, and, and really, what it is is that our old IDSA PGI guidelines suggest adding rifampin and retained hardware infections due to staph because we have multiple studies and one small kind of problematic clinical trial that suggests that adding rifampin might improve cure in that setting. And we just don't have that kind of data for streptococci and other organisms. And this ends up being important later because, for example, there are many studies identifying receipt of a fluoroquinolone is an independent predictor of good outcome in gram-negative PGI that's managed with implant retention, which you may also hear, to us, hear us talk about during this talk as debridement and implant retention, or DARE. So I hope that we're going to be able to convince you that optimal antibiotic selection for infections involving biofilm is a little bit more nuanced than just if staph give rifampin. Yeah, I, I'm here for all of this, especially if you want to go past, quote, if, if staff give rifampin, so please keep it coming. <laughs> um, taking it a step further, I've always wondered as a pharmacist uh, how the pharmacodynamic killing of antibiotics differs in the setting of a prosthetic joint infection from other infectious syndromes that we also treat, like a bloodstream infection from acute pyelonephritis, per se. Are there any data you've come across to suggest fundamental differences in how antibiotics are working in the setting of a PGI? So we know that in PGI, the joint space can take a long time to sterilize, usually on the order of weeks, especially when there's significant biofilm present. And we know that because there was a large randomized controlled trial called the TIPO that was published last year that evaluated rates of cure with either six or 12 weeks of antibiotic therapy um, for PGI. And they found that 12 weeks was statistically superior and also that six weeks was not non-inferior, which always confuses me. Um, and critically, the difference in those outcomes was really being driven by the subgroup of folks um, who received implant retention, where the folks getting 12 weeks had a substantially um, better outcome. So in terms of how DATIPOs impacted my practice, based on that trial, I've started treating patients who undergo DARE with 12 weeks of antibiotic therapy, regardless of pathogen, usually six months if it's staph and a knee prosthesis based on the old guidelines. Um, I will still do six weeks for patients undergoing two-stage ex exchange with a static spacer because um, that patient's non-weight bearing. And in my mind, they're accumulating deconditioning and sarcopenia while I'm treating them. And so I, I do think there's that extra risk to uh, extending their antibiotic regimens. But anyhow, I digress. The key point here is that in this trial, the folks who had implant retention did so much worse with shorter duration therapy. Like their absolute risk increase of treatment failure was more than 16%. Um, 
Uh, and so what that tells us is that retained devices are likely to have biofilm, even with meticulous debridement, and that the slow-growing, metabolically inert, you know, persister cells in those biofilms really need extended durations of therapy, almost like TB therapy, to be totally eradicated. Right. And so as we've talked about, and as Nico um, just uh, reiterated, the current model is that bone and joint infections, and especially PJI, are difficult to eradicate because the bacteria form biofilm, which are more uh, tolerant of antibiotics, so more difficult to kill and get rid of. In vitro, this is measured by the minimum biofilm inhibitory concentration, the MBIC, or the minimum biofilm eradication concentration, or the MBEC. And those can often be orders of magnitude higher than the MIC, which we more commonly think of when we're deciding which antibiotics to use to treat bacteria and um, which dose of antibiotic to use. And it is not practical at all to give orders of magnitude more vancomycin to a human being unless you would like to kill them and their kidneys. Yeah, please uh, no. Yeah, exactly. pharmacist, so, yeah we're not no. gonna, we're typically not gonna give like 10 times the dose of an antibiotic in an effort to eradicate the biofilm. Um, and so in general, the approach is to physically remove it from the body. And we typically think that if no surgery is done for source control, then you will never eradicate the infection. If some surgery is done, whether that's a one-stage exchange, two-stage exchange, or a dare, then most people will be cured with 12 weeks of antibiotics, as in the Datipo trial that Nico just mentioned. I'm, I'm imagining like Luke Skywalker in the Bacta tank, like floating in a big tub of vancomycin. Um, <laughs> I like the visual. <laughs> so to add on to what Laura just mentioned, um, you know, bacteria in mature biofilm tend to be more resistant to many antibiotics versus planktonic or free-floating bacteria, right? And so there are these various theories about why this is the case, but importantly, pretty consistent finding in the basic science literature is that antibiotics targeting cell wall synthesis, so things like vancomycin and beta-lactams, are pretty lousy against bacteria in biofilm. And while nearly every antibiotic has higher MBICs or MBECs than MICs, the absolute differences can be smaller for drugs that have other mechanisms of action like rifampin or daptomycin or doxycycline. And so interestingly, these drugs that we think of as our go-to agents for serious invasive infections in the hospital, you know, our beta-lactams, vancomycin, may actually be some of our least effective options for PGI, or at least PGI when it's being man uh, managed with hardware retention. And again, there are multiple studies that have found specific antibiotic regimens associated with outcome and PGI managed with there, but it's consistently quinolones or quinolone plus rifampin, not beta-lactams and vancomycin, um, that are being found to be more likely to produce cure. It's very interesting uh, to me to see the differences in practice between the US, where many ID docs are still giving these extended courses of VANC and ceftriaxone for PGI, and the rest of the world, where incidentally is where the large cohort studies in clinical trials in PGI are mostly being done, um, where non-cell wall acting and mostly oral antibiotic therapies uh, are, are being used. You know, it's 2022, there's still no shortage of docs clinging to the idea that IV antimicrobials are inherently more effective than oral agents. Um, and while I think that's generally a myth, I also think that in PGI and other biofilm infections specifically, we have a good reason to believe that the oral agents may be better. Okay, so I, I wanna put a pin in that because that debate of oral versus IV antimicrobials is so hot right now, and I do wanna come back to it. But just to make sure that I summarize all this awesome information that you're both giving me. Okay, so one, sticky slime forms quickly covering the surface of bone and or prosthetic material in PJI from likely a wide variety of different bacteria. It's not just staph. Uh, 12 weeks duration, 
uh, is recommended in the setting of DARE specifically and likely other uh, cases of different surgical management as well. And then just kind of round that out, we should look to antibiotics that are non-cell wall acting agents, which is definitely a shift for a lot of folks that don't necessarily have routine practice with this infectious syndrome. So we want to look for antibiotics that inhibit RNA or protein synthesis or DAPTO, which is one of my favorites, it pokes holes in the cell membrane, right? Just like the thing implodes. Uh, and then, or uh, other classes of antimicrobials that otherwise kill the potentially non-replicating bacteria chilling in the goo. Did I get that all right? You got it. Yeah, okay. Sounds good. All right. So we've begun to see a bit uh, of both of your preferences for PJI treatment as you've kind of been talking, but can you walk me through the current standard of care uh, antibiotic regimens for a typical case of PJI? Sure. So the antibiotic choice depends on the organism and the duration depends more or less on the surgical approach. So in the US, most patients are treated either with a two-stage exchange or with a DARE, which is defreedment antibiotics and implant retention. Though more and more are getting sort of a destination spacer, uh, which I can go into in a minute. And there is also a randomized clinical trial of one-stage versus two-stage exchange uh, for hip and knee uh, PJI that just finished enrolling. Uh, and also uh, one on just hip PJI of one stage versus two stage exchange that was just published from the UK. So we may end up seeing more one stage exchanges in the future. So assuming we're talking about staff, if a spacer is placed, most patients will receive IV vancomycin or cefazolin for six weeks, even though as Nico just discussed, that may not be the best approach. Um, or alternatively, they will start off on one of those IV antibiotics. And then when they encounter an enlightened infectious disease physician, they will get switched to a PO regimen to complete the course. Um, if they had a DARE, they will typically get at least 12 weeks of antibiotics, maybe longer, maybe forever. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I'll just add <clears throat> what we don't really have good data on how to treat is these um, destination spacers that Laura just mentioned. Um, so these are typically functional weight-bearing spacers. They let the patient ambulate, and they're intended to last for potentially years. Um, I've been treating these patients as though they'd received a DARE or a single-stage exchange, typically with 12 weeks of antibiotics. I made that choice based on the DeDepo trial because honestly, like when you look at the entire population without stratifying with a surgical approach, the 12 weeks did look better than the six weeks. Um, my impression isn't that we have like a really clear consensus even within the ortho community about how to handle these. Um, yeah, I'm curious, Laura, uh, how you guys do things at Utah. Yeah, we see a fair number of these sort of semi-permanent spacers, which um, basically they are um, not quite as durable as a true prosthetic joint, but they are much more functional than the previous versions of antibiotic cement spacers. We will typically treat anywhere from six to 12 weeks, uh, depending on the anticipated surgical plan and also how well the patient did post-op and whether or not they're likely to be a candidate for further surgeries. So for example, in patients for whom 
this is their sixth surgery on the joint and we're really doing everything we can to keep this uh, spacer in as long as possible and avoid any possible recurrence of infection, I tend to treat those patients for longer. Um, but I agree if it's somebody who is otherwise doing well and this is their first prosthetic joint infection, then anywhere from six to 12 weeks is what I would do. Usually 12 if I know for sure that they're not headed to surgery anytime soon. Yeah, and, and often um, the way that this is playing out, at, at least uh, at my shop, is um, our surgical colleagues will put in one of these destination spacers and tell us, you know, we're going to decide like in long-term follow-up over the next couple months when we see this person in clinic, whether or not they need a two-stage now or, or if it can be put off for a few years. Just curious, what percentage of your patients do you typically see with these destination spacers, which seem kind of like newer technology than even when I was in training like 10 years ago? The answer is probably very institution specific, but we've been seeing a lot of them. I'd say that's probably, oh, I don't know, a fifth, maybe a quarter of the procedures being done when it's not something that was being done at all when, when I first uh, took this position a couple of years ago. Wow, okay. Yeah, I see it a fair bit as well. I would say it's becoming more and more popular because it doesn't seem to have a lot of downsides. Right. It is not done in patients who have already previously failed things or patients who, for whatever reason, need a static spacer, which is not done very much anymore, but some right. patients do need that. And that is, again, that is a surgical decision, so I'm not the correct person to explain why one patient needs a static spacer and another patient gets the articulating spacer. In general, the static spacers are for patients who have had multiple prior surgeries, many prior complications, and the static spacer is sort of one last attempt to try to eradicate the infection and mm -hmm. get the soft tissue envelope to heal appropriately. Yeah, those cases are always tough. I remember walking into those patient rooms and you just, you feel for them. I think, Nico, you alluded to the deconditioning that can happen for those patients that are non-ambulatory. So um, I'm glad to hear that the surgical approach has, has evolved. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, surgical approach, um, I want to kind of rear in a little bit back to antibiotic choice. Um, in particular, I've heard, a, obviously, there's always been this uh, emphasis on rifampin, uh, usually adjunctive rifampin in PJI. So I'll be honest, I do try to recommend rifampin in PJI whenever it's indicated based on the current guidelines we have and more recent evidence that we have. But at least half the time, we cannot administer it because the patient is either on an anticoagulant or other interacting med that I can't get around and it prohibits rifampin's use. So I'm just curious, you guys see a lot higher volume of these cases than, than even I do. Is this something that you encounter as well? Um, understanding that, you know, we're trying to go for, you know, an agent that is not acting on the cell wall that'll kind of get into those biofilm bacterial cells. So what's your experience with rifampin? Can you actually uh, end up prescribing it to your patient? Um, how do you handle these situations? For me, it depends very much on what the interaction is and how much it matters. So I pretty much ignore the statin rifampin interaction. Same thing <laughs> yeah. with thyroid replacement. Like, I honestly don't really care <laughs> if your thyroid <laughs> pill is a little I love the honesty. Like, I just, there's things that I, it just doesn't matter to me. And I suspect probably doesn't matter to the patient's care that much if their drug levels are a little bit lower for a few months. The things I pay attention to are anticoagulants. 
so for me, that depends a lot on which anticoagulant and why they're on it. Like, is it for AFib with maybe a slightly elevated CHAD score, or is it a mechanical heart valve where they absolutely need to be therapeutic on their Coumadin and we need to not right. around with that? Right. So the stakes are very different uh, depending on what the interaction is. So I take that into account. And then I'm also most interested in using rifampin when I can use it in combination with a quinolone. Typically, I use levofloxacin for staph infections. If I'm not in the situation where I'm trying to use quinolone plus rifampin for a staphylococcal infection, I'm less uh, uh, eager to prescribe rifampin or I don't care as much about whether or not I can use it because the evidence just isn't there. Yeah, that's that's really where I land too. Um, I, I guess first I would say if you go back and look at the data supporting adjunctive rifampin for prosthetic joint infection, it is largely the data that the specific combination of rifampin and a quinolone is beneficial for prosthetic joint infection. Um, and in fact, when you look at the rifampin for PGI studies that have stratified outcomes by the type of drug that is partnered with rifampin, what you see is that the folks who get that specific rifampin plus four quinolone combination have way higher rates of cure versus both the patients who got monotherapy and also the patients who got rifampin partnered with any other drug. And um, maybe part of that is confounding by indication. I mean, raise your hand if you like giving quinolones to the elderly or folks who have underlying heart disease, um, which we know are other independent risk factors for PGI treatment failure. No one is raising their hand for that. <laughs> but, you know, the other potential explanation is that we know from this in vitro data that, you know, the U.S. standard empiric regimens like beta-lactams and vancomycin are not the best drugs for biofilm. And we know that among the potential PO partner drugs, many of the non-quinolone options, things like clindamycin, linazolid, doxycycline, trimsulfa, um, all have their metabolism induced by rifampin to some degree, um, which you know theoretically could be reducing that, that regimen's potency. Um, and so I guess I consider myself these days kind of like a reformed rifampin nihilist. I think it is important to consider in your risk-benefit calculus that most of the data rifampin is helpful um, including the one, again, kind of problematic little clinical trial, um, used a specific combination of rifampin plus a quinolone. Okay, got it. So both you and Laura are in agreement here. Gosh, you're so agreeable. Uh, that it's the magic combination of a flow quinolone, oftentimes levofloxacin, plus rifampin that makes the secret sauce. Is that right? Okay. I think that's really where the data is. Um, now, I will say just a couple months ago in, in OFID, there was a big retrospective study um, that looked at uh, VA patient PGI outcomes, and they found rifampin was, receipt of rifampin um, modestly reduced the rate of failure. And I have to imagine that many of those patients were getting the sort of standard drugs that are given in the US, like vancomycin and beta-lactam. And so that's probably the study that you you would point to if you wanted to use that with, with standard drugs. Um, but even in that paper, they didn't actually report what the partner drugs were. So we don't know that for sure. Right, yeah. And I, I have seen um, kind of buzzing discussions on ID social media talking about the clinical significance of this uh, rifampin and a, a partner antibiotic. For example, the rifampin-doxy interaction, the rifampin-trimsulfa interaction. And I, I mean, that's honestly a call to us as pharmacists to do a little bit of additional work to figure out if 
it really is a clinically significant difference. I honestly don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's certainly plausible. Yeah, I remember several years ago asking some of the more senior ortho ID docs about whether they worried about the interaction between Rifampin and linazolid, I think was one I brought up, and Rifampin and doxycycline, because those right. are often oral antibiotics that we are trying to use for staphylococcal infections. Yep. And one of them said, I worry about it, but only for linazolid. And the other one said, I worry about it, but only for doxycycline. And <laughs> I think, okay, well. What do you do with that? What do you do with that information? I mean, I think, um, as you say, ideally, we would have more data from uh, clinical trials, therapeutic drug monitoring, which I think you'll mention later, um, for that would help us decide whether or not this is an important interaction or not. And yeah. if it is, how to manage it. I mean, dose optimization is totally my jam. That's my, my personal bias. So if you tell me, hey, I'm not sure if this dose is right, then I'm like, I, I got you. We can, as, as a field, if there's one thing we as pharmacists can do is, is to help with dose up. So I think that's a, a really interesting topic that deserves more study uh, from all of us. So I appreciate y'all going through that. But I do, I do want to stay on this topic of rifampin for a second, because I think it comes up so often in clinical practice. Just to round out the discussion, are there any situations where you would definitely avoid rifampin based on potential drug interactions? Yeah, I really agree with Laura's comments earlier. Um, so for me, the, the two big issues are the interacting antiplatelet therapies and therapeutic anticoagulation that the patient really needs, like for a heart valve or pulmonary embolism. Um, those are situations where, honestly, I don't even really entertain the idea of adding rifampin, even if it's a staph-retained hardware infection. Um, I'm also cautious about adding it in patients who have severe liver disease because the potential for additive hepatotoxicity. And like, I know, like, I can hear the TB docs who are off the distance yelling that, like, oh, we give rifampin and TB to treat cirrhotics all the time. But if you look at the ortho ID literature, um, unplanned rifampin discontinuation in PGI treatment is not rare at all. And so um, maybe I'm a coward, but I, I remain hesitant about adding in that situation. Uh, for, for what it's worth, Nico, I, I agree with you. I've been looking at um, a lot of these oral antimicrobials and rates of adverse events across the TB population, like with fluoroquinolones and linazolid and the, and the like, versus other general ID populations, and they seem to be different. Um, there's a lot of things going into that. Obviously, you have a large international population uh, being treated for TB. The age of these patients can be different. The comorbidities can be different. Um, so I agree with you in terms of pausing before generalizing uh, a TB population experience over to, to PGI patients. So just to round out, um, I'm a pharmacist. We're talking about rifampin, so I, I got to throw in there from our perspective, again, my bias being inpatient, more, more general ID, I also press like the stop button on rifampin for any patients with uh, opioid use disorder. Um, and that's really a patient safety issue because if we successfully start someone on rifampin for treatment of their infectious syndrome, um, it can interact with the opiate that they are dosing for themselves on their own. And I get particularly nervous about the period when they would come off of the rifampin and over the next couple of weeks, their hepatic enzymes are going back to normal to pre-existing levels before they started the rifampin. And they could potentially continue uh, self-administering the same opioid dose, which could then become particularly dangerous for them. 
um, as a patient and put them at risk for um, increased morbidity and potentially mortality uh, due to overdose with the opiate. So um, other serious drug interactions um, often include um, antiepileptics. I think that's worth discussing, things like phenytoin, carbamazepine, especially in a patient with ongoing uncontrolled seizures. Uh, I don't really mess with that. Um, and then every once in a while, uh, it's a minority of patients, but if you get someone that is reliant on oral contraceptives, uh, rifampin is going to significantly decrease those um, during that period, which, which could be really problematic. So again, not an exhaustive list, but just some of the cases that I've come across where I have not been able to outmaneuver the drug interaction. All right. Considering that this is a podcast on ID topics, I am going to come back that ever popular question, how often are you using orals versus IV antibiotics overall for PJI? So for me at this point, I, I'm rapidly switching to PO in most patients, maybe like two thirds, a little more than that. Um, sometimes that's a, a one to two week clinic follow-up visit, but a lot of time it's at discharge. Um, if I am your ortho ID doctor and you are on six weeks of IV therapy, it is either because you have some really resistant bug, or you just have an unfortunate combination of comorbidities or drug-drug issues that are taking all my oral options off the table, um, or you're just someone I'm pretty sure is going to have a bad outcome, and I don't want your oral antibiotics being blamed for treatment failure that I think was more or less predestined. I agree. I am using more and more oral antibiotic therapy uh, in my PJI patients um, and trying to encourage my colleagues to do the same. So we had a pharmacy resident at the University of Utah, um, Jana Gallagher, and what she did for her QI project was to create guidelines for which oral antibiotics should be used in to treat different uh, bacteria causing orthopedic infections. And then she looked at the rate of patients with orthopedic infections who were discharged on oral versus IV antibiotics pre and post handing out this guideline. And not surprisingly, once we handed out the guideline, the number of patients discharged on oral antibiotics for their orthopedic infections doubled. And so we are now looking at data on, did we cause any harm? Were there increased unplanned readmissions or repeat surgeries in the patients who got oral antibiotics. Uh, we don't expect to see any because the Oviva trial showed that they should work just as well, but it is worth verifying that they work just as well in our hands uh, when we are the ones making the decisions. Um, I will say we have noticed that most of our quote unquote failures or readmissions seem to have been in patients with diabetic foot infections uh, who are fall into that category of bad outcome uh, maybe predestined. And so we may mm -hmm. be blaming it on the oral antibiotics, but really it's just that diabetic foot infections are mm -hmm. uh, not that easy to uh, cure. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of confounding by indication. And that's why I'm always like a little anxious about seeing oral antibiotic data that's retrospective for diabetic foot infection, because my experience has always been like, well, you get augments and egdoxy if no one's going to do anything or the patient doesn't want any sort of surgery and we're just giving them some antibiotics uh, as a Hail Mary play. That's just, you know, not, not comparable to the folks who undergo a third thorough debridement and then get the six weeks IV therapy. It's just two different patient populations. Yeah, there's, there's so many questions there, not least of which is if, they're, if they really are that far progressed in their diabetes uh, pathophysiology it's likely that they're also potentially obese, which also has implications for drug exposure with orals and stuff like that. 
again, I'm a pharmacist, so that's where my mind goes. But um, I think there's there's a lot of different questions that that we could ask there for sure. Um, Laura, that's awesome that you partnered with Pharmacy. Shout out to interprofessional uh, research and collaboration in QI. So I love that. And trainee inclusion in training as well. I, I know a lot, all three of us have worked with trainees and uh, gotten a lot of mileage out of that in terms of culture change. So going further in this kind of rapid fire hot topics in questions regarding PJI treatment, I'm curious to know where you guys land with the role of suppressive therapy in PJI? I think that the role of suppressive therapy is to give orthoidy docs angst and something to argue about, <laughs> not infinite. Very honest answer. Yeah, yeah and, and also to annoy any of the stewards who are like still listening after oh, yeah. sitting around hearing us tell you about how actually it's good to give fluoroquinolones for months and months. Oh my gosh, yeah, I, I feel like... I, a couple of us might lose our stewy stripes with some folks on this pod, but uh, for example, like our local ID division and stewardship team, we're known for being strong proponents of definitive oral fluoroquinolone therapy for serious infections in the right patient. Like when a fluoroquinolone truly optimizes that benefits risk calculation for the particular case. So don't worry, Nico, you won't hear any dissent from me when you're coming at me saying you want a fluoroquinolone and the data are there, but I do think um, along those lines, I'm also left scratching my head a little bit when it comes to the decisions of suppressive therapy after completion of their IV or oral antibiotic treatment regimen. So um, I know y'all gave me a, a, a quick answer, but if possible, can we just elaborate a little bit on really how you're balancing yep. out whether or not you like a serious answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate the off-the-cuff answer. It's absolutely, it's true, but um, where are we with the data? Sure. All right, so let's go back to that DATIPO trial to start. So an interesting um, uh, fact about that trial is that they actually didn't give anyone antimicrobial suppression. And despite that, the long-term cure after DARE and 12 weeks of antibiotics was about 85%. And so to start, we do know most patients are going to do well, probably don't need suppression. Um, now, second, there have been like literally dozens of studies that examine the risk factors for treatment failure after DARE, and we see the same few factors showing up again and again and again. And these are things like infection with Staph aureus, polymicrobial infection, concurrent bacteremia, infection of, of a revision arthroplasty rather than the, the original prosthesis, or a prior infection treatment failure, and infection that incurs later after surgery rather than in the first months or so. So we also know not only that most people do, will do well, we know which subset of patients are most likely to fail and therefore most likely to benefit from suppression. And so the next question that's worth asking is whether antimicrobial suppression actually prevents recurrent infection. And it turns out there are about four studies out there. They're all retrospective. They're all kind of small, um, but they consistently suggest that prolonged suppressive antibiotics might reduce subsequent antibiotic failure. These data look more convincing for patients who receive DARE versus implant removal strategies, which makes sense because you're getting rid of most of the biofilm. And they're conflicting as to whether there's benefit for indefinite antibiotics or whether, for example, you're just as likely to do well if the suppression is stopped at one year versus continued forever. And then finally, we should ask what the harms of chronic suppression are. And again, the quality of data in this space is poor, maybe a dozen retrospective case series and cohort studies, most with sample sizes in the dozens and durations of therapy between like six months to several years. That said, 
The rate of treatment discontinuation due to adverse events is usually low, about in the 5 to 10% range. And I think that makes sense when you consider that suppressive antibiotics being employed are mostly oral beta-lactams and doxycycline, and patients given suppression had likely already been on those drugs for several uh, weeks or months anyway to complete their initial durations of treatment, uh, which means there's some survival bias that's sort of baked into that literature. My approach to suppression is to have an individual risk-benefit discussion with the patient. I give them my impression of their likelihood of treatment failure based on the bug, the surgery, their other risk factors. I talk about the side effect profile of whatever I think the least bad suppressive option is. And I give them my general recommendation uh, as to whether or not they should do suppression with the caveat that it's based on really limited data. And honestly, in most cases, I'm willing to be persuaded to go either way. If you want to get even more into the weeds on this, you can go listen to the episode uh, uh, 31 of Sarah Dong's podcast, Febrile, um, where we talk about shared decision-making surrounding suppression after DARE. Uh, at, at even greater length. Oh, yes. We are big fans of Saradong and Febrile here at Breakpoints. So um, I agree that that's a great discussion that you had during that episode. We will be sure to provide a link to that episode in the show notes. So thank you for going through that, that data as I re-asked the question. <laughs> um, again, with the line of hot topics, another hot topic in ortho ID is the role of secondary prophylaxis at the time of uh, stage two reimplantation. I've heard you guys may have some data on this, so would you be willing to share? Absolutely. So a few years ago, a randomized clinical trial was published looking at um, giving oral antibiotics at the time of stage two reimplantation for PJI as a way of preventing subsequent infections. Because as it happens, um, even when you treat with a two-stage exchange, which is at the moment, sort of our gold standard surgical approach for PJI, about 15% of those patients will go on to have another PJI in that same joint. And so that's unacceptably high. And so in an effort to reduce that risk, this trial uh, looked at giving three months of oral antibiotics directed against the pathogen that had been the cause of their initial PJI after stage two reimplantation. And they found that doing so did reduce the risk of repeat PJI in that population. So that led to many surgeons adopting the practice of giving three months of oral antibiotics at the time of stage two reimplantation surgery for PJI. Of note, when they did that trial, most of the repeat infections were with new bugs, not with the same bug that they had previously. So usually these infections are new infections in a susceptible host, not a recurrence or recrudescence of their prior infection. So because of that, many um, doctors, or at least here at the University of Utah, our surgeons said, okay, well, then we're just going to give everybody doxycycline because that's a pretty safe antibiotic. It's easy to dose. It doesn't have a ton of drug-drug interactions. You know, the risk of C. diff is lower and it covers all the bugs that you're typically thinking of for a PJI, right? It covers Staph epi, Staph aureus, including MRSA. It's got some Cudibacterium acne's activity too. So it seems like a really good it's choice. It's the best drug. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, uh, starting in about 2017, when the data from this clinical trial uh, was made public, um, our patients um, at Utah and also many at many centers across the country started getting three months of oral antibiotics after stage two, and our patients got usually doxycycline. I happen to notice, and this is what I love about academic medicine, I happen to notice that in these some of these patients who had received 
doxycycline, and then unfortunately went on to have a new PJI. It seems like they were getting infections with doxycycline-resistant staph epi, which is not common. So in our antibiogram, the vast majority of our staph epi is like more than 90% is doxycycline susceptible. But yet I was seeing these patients with PJIs with doxycycline-resistant staph epi. And so we looked at our data. We said, okay, let's look at our patients um, going back from before we made the switch to after, and then looked at patients who'd received oral antibiotics after stage two versus not, and then looked at those who unfortunately went on to have a new infection and looked at the resistance profile. Um, and this was published in the Journal of Arthroplasty uh, not too long ago, Mick Kelly, who is one of the joints uh, fellows uh, at University of Utah a couple of years ago was the first author. He is amazing. Um, and what we found was indeed, we did see fewer infections in the patients who got the oral antibiotics after stage two, but in those unfortunate enough to go on and have another infection, now it was more likely to be with a resistant organism. So there appears to be a trade-off between reducing the risk of subsequent infection, which is important, and increasing the chance that that next infection is gonna be harder to treat. Um, so we then um, are trying to look at other centers because obviously this was just, you know, retrospective data from a single center with all the caveats that go along with that. Uh, we did have one of our ID fellows, Dr. Judd Payne, start looking at the VA national data, and that was presented in a poster at ID Week this year, and analysis of that data is ongoing. But again, the way I view this now is that it does seem like those antibiotics probably do reduce the risk of subsequent infection somewhat. The question is whether it's worth it, given the increased risk of infection with a resistant bug that now is gonna be way harder to treat. And once you're having two PJIs, you're the patient population that we wanna put on long-term oral suppression often. And yeah. if you can't use doxycycline and you have resistant staph epi, so I'm now having patients that are on long-term Clinda, uh, oh no, linazolid. I mean, so you're running out of options for what you can be on for chronic suppression if you're losing your tetracyclines. Long-term clindo will definitely lose us Stewie stripes as a group. So, <laughs> um, first of all, that's fascinating. Kudos to you and your group uh, at Utah for for working on this. Um, I'll we'll definitely make sure that we make uh, those the links to those data um, available in the show notes. Um, Nico, you had a thought there? Yeah, you know, the one thing I would add is, uh, and first of all, like Laura's being kind of modest, um, she has been really like driving the follow-up work after this trial was published to see if this is actually the right thing to do. And mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate that, big kudos. Um, one thing that, you know, we, when we were looking at this data um, at UNMC, uh, our ortho ID group noticed that, you know, there wasn't really a strong biologic or honestly any stated rationale for the durations that they chose for this randomized control trial. So they were giving like three months um, of culture-directed therapy after, after two-stage. Um, and it is not clear where three months came from. Um, and we did not think that that was justifiable from the stewardship standpoint and that it, and that it might contribute to excess, you know, antimicrobial resistance. Um, and so we've only been, we have been doing this, but we've only been giving folks about two weeks of antibiotic therapy. Um, I guess our rationale is that most of the surgical wound healing occurs during that period. Um, so, you know, there's, we're, we're covering them while there is opportunity for microbes to 
um, get down into the implant and then hopefully there's been enough coverage that uh, um, that most of the the risk is the period of risk is, has passed um, so I I think this is definitely a topic that is uh, ripe for future study over the next couple of years so we can figure out um, whether or not this is indeed the right thing to be doing yeah it definitely sounds like we're at the frontier of figuring out what to do with with secondary prophylaxis yeah, I agree. And I think there are a lot of centers, as Mika mentioned, are trying to find the balance between mm-hmm. protecting these patients from further infection while not unnecessarily uh, increasing the risk of drug-resistant infections. And we just don't know yet uh, what that perfect balance is. Yeah. And a lot of these patients, particularly those at high risk for recurrence, a lot of what I end up doing as a drug specialist is preventing people from painting themselves into a corner um, when it comes to the case. So Laura, I would be fascinated to know of those patients with doxycycline resistant staph epi infections in detail, what did you put them on? How did they do? What were their complication rates? Uh, how many of them had to discontinue therapy? How many were forced to stay on IVs and had pick line complications? Like all of that, right? Because that matters when we're ultimately trying to suss out whether or not we want to give secondary prophylaxis, and if so, for how long. So uh, again, kudos to, to both of you. Um, and I'm gonna encourage Nico to, hopefully we'll see him on the conference circuit publishing on how that two week course did as well. Um, yeah, fa- fascinating stuff. And, and I'm glad we kind of got to cover that, that topic. Uh, but there's a lot of other research happening um, in the space of PJI and ortho ID. You guys are very busy and in high demand. So please, Tell us, what upcoming research are you most excited about in this space? I think, as I've alluded to previously, there's some studies going on, randomized clinical trials looking at one-stage versus two-stage exchange for PJI. There's an ongoing trial in the U.S., a multicenter trial looking at both hips and knees and randomizing patients to one-stage versus two-stage exchange. And I think it has finished enrolling, so hopefully within the next couple years, we will have some data from that. Um, And there was a similar study published um, from the UK just a few days ago on a similar topic. So I think that's really interesting because I prefer when patients have fewer surgeries. Um, The other study that I'm interested uh, to see the results of is the VA Intrepid study, which is looking at diabetic foot infections and the use of adjunct diprofampin. So patients with diabetic foot osteomyelitis who are plan to get six weeks of antibiotic therapy are randomized to either rifampin or placebo, um, and then looking at outcomes in that patient population. And so I think that will also be really interesting to see the results of that study to see if rifampin has benefit in osteomyelitis in the absence of hardware. Yeah, and one of the cool things about VA Intrepid is, if I recall, they are going to give us stratified outcomes by IV versus oral antibiotics. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know if they've committed to giving us like breakdown by exact complete regimens, but if they do, that'd be really neat because that would give us a little bit more insight in the, you know, is it quinolone rifampin or is it anything rifampin question. I will definitely be pulling up the supplementary appendix for that one when it comes out. I also just wanted to say, because we've been really harping on the quinolone or famine is awesome theme for the past. <laughs> we have, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I do think there's a lot of quinolone phobia 
within the ID profession, both on the um, physician side and on the pharmacy side, people are very concerned about tendinopathy, um, aortic aneurysm, neuropathy. There are all sorts of very potentially scary side effects from quinolones. Now, how prevalent those side effects are, I think is debatable. But I also think that if quinolone plus rifampin really has the best clinical data, then you should not be afraid to use it for your patient because it's also really bad to end up with an above knee amputation or a hip disarticulation. And so I think that just like oncologists are willing to give toxic chemotherapy if it's the best drug to kill the cancer, we should be willing to give quinolone rifampin if uh, that's the best combination to cure their PGI. As a pharmacist, I would totally agree. My own personal philosophy is you got to try the drug on for size in every patient case. So you've listed some of the main side effects, the classic uh, tendon rupture um, or, or aortic dissection rupture that is listed in the package insert for fluoroquinolones, which of course are potentially devastating outcomes. But the more common things that I see with fluoroquinolones are things like dysglycemias in a diabetic. Um, that's something that I see much more often and potentially goes unnoticed, right? Someone's on levofloxacin and their sugars are now in the 300s and everybody's like, what's going on with this? Um, another thing too is the, the CNS uh, side effects that can occur with fluoroquinolones, they span a very large spectrum. You can have anything from dizziness to vivid dreams that the patient really doesn't like to uh, you know, exacerbation of mental health disorders uh, and seizures. And so it's a wide spectrum. And when you go into the patient's room and you ask them, how are you doing? Uh, you, if you probe a little bit and, and ask the right open-ended followed by closed-ended questions, you can find that a lot of these patients can be having um, some of those more common side effects to, to fluoroquinolones. So I think it is important, and I don't want us to just say, you know, full court press, everybody gets levofloxacin uh, all the time. Um, I, I appreciate the balance and the application of a measured approach to how and when to use these agents. And I also think we could probably do a better job of evaluating safety in the trials. This is probably just me as a pharmacist, but just a single table that tells me the proportion of patients that, that had these side effects. I need a little bit more. Like, did it how bad was it? Did it, how many people had to stop? Did, did it resolve? How quickly did it resolve? Um, there's a lot of additional work that we honestly, NID probably could do better in terms of quantifying that, that benefits to risk ratio. Yeah, I agree. And I think patients do have side effects from many antibiotics, including quinolones of all the ones you've mentioned that um, have to be monitored. And I think that the trials would be way more helpful if we had a little bit more data on how serious the side effects were mm -hmm. and which ones were manageable, which ones forced a discontinuation or change in therapy. Um, I guess I just feel like because there's so much on the don't ever use a quinolone, they're terrible drug side out there in the um, sort of ether, it feels like, mm -hmm. that this is one indication where it might be worth it. Sure. Yeah, yeah I think that's well appreciated. I promise not to use any Cipro for cystitis. Just, just let me have it for my Ben and John infections. <laughs> I will not come for you, Nico. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So um, there are a bunch of studies that are in progress uh, over in Europe right now that I think are super interesting. So the first I'll mention is called Solario, which is being done in the UK. 
Um, and this is looking at standard prolonged systemic antibiotic therapy versus like one week of systemic IV or oral antibiotics followed by like only local antibiotic therapy um, for orthopedic infections, including orthopedic hardware infections. Um, so that would be a huge game changer. Yeah. Um, if we can give all, you know, local antibiotics from a stewardship perspective and also just for like the patient quality of life perspective. Um, so that's very exciting to me. Um, or the second is, so there was published just in the past, I can't remember if it was this year or last year, but there was a, a pilot randomized controlled trial looking at three versus six weeks of antibiotic therapy for diabetic foot infection, um, which found no difference between those two durations. And actually it excluded the possibility uh, in the 95% confidence interval of uh, substantial inferiority of, um, uh, of the three-week regimen. But despite that, they are doing a larger follow-up uh, randomized controlled trial um, to sort of definitively demonstrate that three weeks is not inferior to six weeks for DFI. Um, and one of the things that excites me about that trial is that they're also going to stratify for surgical versus non-operative management. Um, and so I think that this could really uh, inform antibiotic durations in what is, you know, a very common bread and butter ID consult. Um, the third is rifamab, which is being done in France. This is basically a, a randomized controlled trial comparing adjunctive rifampin to adjunctive rifibutin for staphylococcal PGI being managed with DARE. Um, that would be really cool because rifibutin is much cleaner from the drug-drug interaction perspective than rifampin um, and would really facilitate you know, rifamycin therapy and a lot of these folks that we just talked about not being able to use rifampin in. Um, it'd also be great to have a randomized controlled trial because although honestly this is something that is already being done um, occasionally at a few centers here in the US, um, there are no established CLSI or UCAST breakpoints for rifibutin and staff. Um, the quality of data supporting that practice is like a couple in vitro studies and like a seven patient case series. Uh, and so to have randomized prospective data showing that rifibutin is an effective alternative would be really important. The last trial I would call out is um, MIC versus MBEC, so minimum biofilm eradication concentration guided antibiotic therapy for prosthetic joint infection that's being done in Sweden. Um, and this kind of gets back to the very beginning of our talk where um, Laura was telling us about how uh, cells and mature biofilm are more resistant to antibiotic therapy. And, and the idea here is if we can actually test the biofilm eradication concentrations, perhaps we can define um, more effective antimicrobial therapy. That one's just getting started. I mean, it's going to be like 2025 or 2026 until it finishes. But um, I, I hope they find useful results. I think that could be very cool. That sounds super cool. Kudos to all those investigators and all those study teams. Um, I think we're all anxiously awaiting. And I'd be more than happy to invite you all back uh, this time next year and in subsequent years to review the findings for these upcoming trials. So we have had so much fun talking to both of you about all things uh, PJI and bone and joint infection, um, but we're gonna lean in a little bit more uh, before we finish up for today with our last and most fun segment, I Feel Nerdy. So I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe space Police for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. 
For today's I Feel Nerdy, I want to hear your favorite oral antibiotic. And why is it doxycycline? Okay, no, just kidding. All right, it, it doesn't have to be doxycycline. But um, <laughs> but you do both treat bone and joint infections all the time. So uh, I'll change it up a little bit. What's your favorite bug or drug fact that helps you in your day-to-day -day practice caring for these difficult patients? I do not know if this is fact or fiction, uh, but I found an old article uh, suggesting that minocycline causes less sun sensitivity than doxycycline. And in Utah, it is very sunny a lot of the time, which is awesome. But it also means that I have a lot of patients run into sun trouble on doxycycline with very painful, very bad sunburn. It looks awful. Um, and switching them to minocycline has actually solved the problem the couple of times I have tried it. And so I've decided that I'm going to keep making that switch as needed if patients have bad sensitivity to doxycycline. Uh, Laura, as, as your consulting pharmacist, I can tell you that uh, you would be in the majority uh, in that uh, recommendation. Uh, it does seem that Doxy does have more uh, photosensitivity uh, than minocycline does comparatively. Uh, in preparation for this podcast, I actually went looking. Um, and yeah, it's a 1972 paper. Uh, first author is Frost, and it was actually in a dermatology journal. So you're absolutely right. It was a randomized trial. Uh, where they had three groups. Um, they randomized patients to either uh, a week of doxy, a week of minocycline, or a week of placebo. Um, and then this was done in Miami, Florida, at which I'm from South Florida, but they, they took people out on a yacht for like a day and they counted up the number of people that had either paresthesias or an abnormal sunburn. And so this is fascinating. The doxy group, 11 out of the 15 subjects ended up experiencing either the, the paresthesias uh, or the abnormal sunburn. Most of them did have that crazy sunburn you were talking about. Um, and zero of the 17 patients in the minocycline arm, as well as zero of the patients in the placebo arm, experienced the, those types of uh, phototoxic effects. Um, so does that sound right? Did I find the right one? I think so. That does sound right. I definitely remember that it was very old and not that big, but fairly convincing that uh, minocycline had fewer sun sensitivity reactions than doxycycline did. Fabulous. All right. So I did my job. I'll send you that PDF in case you ever want it for, <laughs> for reference, and we'll be sure to put it in, in the show notes. Um, in my own practice, we basically recommend dispensing doxy with like a bottle of sunscreen and a big hat because that phototoxicity is, is a well-known uh, potential side effect for patients. Um, and it is that type of phototoxicity is possible, but much more rare for minocycline. Um, just to be fair, if we're talking about side effects, minocycline is, however, well known for, um, in some patients, it can cause hyperpigmentation, um, especially with prolonged use of minocycline, which I think is relevant for the PJI population we're discussing. Um, and that hyperpigmentation with minnow can manifest as either like localized either blue black or, or gray lesions on the skin that can be slow to resolve upon minocycline discontinuation or another form which is a more generalized darker brown hyperpigmentation of the skin that can in fact be permanent even after you stop the minocycline so um either side effect that we're talking about here is potentially manageable um kind of reinforcing the importance of clinic follow-up visits and counseling the patient ahead of time and monitoring um, in the event that either of these side effects do, do show up. So um, it's good to know that I have kind of job security as a pharmacist. <laughs> but
But all right, Laura, so you took us back to 1972 for your fun fact. Uh, Nico, where are you taking us with your nerdy tip? Okay, well, um, first of all, my, I think my real favorite antibiotic is doxycycline. I don't know that I've ever met an ID doctor who gave any other answer. Great drug. <laughs> um, but I'm going to give my standard pitch for cefadroxyl. Honestly, it's sort of like a really bad choice on my part uh, as a drug to shill for because it's been generic for decades. No one's going to pay me to do it. Um, but unless you're on ID Twitter, you probably just have some dim memories of cefadroxyl as like another oral first-gen cephalosporin that everyone passes over for cephalexin. And I'm going to tell you, I think it has a lot to recommend it. So just like cephalexin, it's highly bioavailable, but also has a slightly longer half-life that potentially facilitates twice-daily dosing. Um, I'm passionate about limiting outpatient dosing intervals because my own experience as a patient is that adherence to anything taken more than twice daily is a real struggle. And frankly, I'd rather have my patients be taking cefadroxyl twice daily than cefalexin twice daily. Um, anyway, there's data for cefadroxyl in both soft tissue and musculoskeletal infections, although honestly, it's just a couple old small retrospective studies and it's in children. So take that with a grain of salt. However, I have found it useful as an oral switch option when there's some reason I can't use quinoline rifampin or Pactrim or linazolid or doxy instead. Um, and if you want to get into the weeds about this drug's pharmacokinetics, I'll point you towards two papers. Um, there's a 1979 PK study by Lode et al. Um, and a 1993 review by Sater that looks at cefadroxyl-specific MICs for common pathogens. Um, but long story short, it looks like it probably gives very good time over MIC at the one gram BID dose um, for, for both strep and a little over half the time over MIC for staff, which is kind of getting into just good enough territory, um, which you know I'm usually using it as step-down therapy after a couple of weeks of IV lead-in, and, and I feel okay with that. Um, last but not least, getting cefadroxyl both on your institution's formulary and at local pharmacies seems like it's the main barrier to folks adopting it. Um, and to that, I would say, you can now get the 500 milligram caps uh, on cost plus drugs. At the time of this recording, a one gram BID dose costs about 40 bucks a month. And so that could be a great workaround if you're not able to source it locally. I love that fun fact, Nico. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's just because I'm a part of ID Twitter or just because locally we've been on a kick to find like all possible highly bioavailable oral antibiotics that can be taken twice a day or less often. <laughs> um, we also have some love for, for cefadroxyl at our local center. Uh, we did actually add it to formulary in the last few years. Uh, nice. And we do use it as an option uh, for MSSA and other serious gram-positive infections. Um, not necessarily just PJI, but um, we kind of try it on for size when, when the case fits. Um, I did not know that tip about cost plus drugs though. So I will definitely be checking that out and hopefully um, with increased use and interest and in research with cefadroxyl as an option, um, we will keep improving access to, to that particular therapy. All right, so I guess it's my turn. Uh, my fun fact has to do with the risk of side effects while on long-term linazolid. Um, I, again, my bias, I trained um, in Chicago at a center that used uh, linazolid for lots of different types of infectious syndromes um, and didn't necessarily shy away from, from longer term use past 14 days. But then I came to my current center um, in the Southeast US um, and they barely used it at all. It was like, you know, they, they weren't gonna touch it. Um, so I went diving into the literature to kind of understand what are the risk factors for linazolid toxicity, such as bone marrow suppression, uh, neuropathy and the like. 
Um, and what I found was that there's actually a decent body of literature to support that, for example, linazolid bone marrow suppression, like thrombocytopenia or, or anemia, is very closely associated with some pretty consistent risk factors across a variety of different cohorts. So for example, renal dysfunction, once you start to have patients have creatinine clearances estimated to be like less than 60 mils per minute, I get very worried around like 30, 40, for example. We don't normally dose adjust the linazolid that we're giving those uh, patients, but you start to see an increase in association for significantly increased incidence of things like bone marrow suppression. In addition, um, elderly patients, which probably is somewhat confounded by this renal dysfunction, to be quite honest, um, but then also things like their baseline starting uh, platelet count, um, the lower that is, the higher the risk for bone marrow suppression, and then prolonged duration in particular can also be a risk factor. So that's my fun fact. Um, if nothing else, I would suggest if you're considering linazolid for treatment of uh, PJI, particularly if it's long-term therapy, take a look at your patient and see if they have, for example, if they have renal dysfunction and they're over 75, I'm personally not pulling for linazolid for that patient. I might try really hard to look for something else. Um, that's personally where my practice is. And I know there's a lot of research going on right now, a lot of it being done in Italy, some uh, in other parts uh, of the world that are looking at linazolid TDM. Uh, that data is still pretty early, but we're trying to figure out if we could expand the safe and effective use of linazolid for things like PJI and really minimize that toxicity risk in the long-term if we were to check the levels directly and then do dosage adjustment. So I, I think there's a, a couple of centers that are, that are looking into this. Hopefully we'll see some more research down the road to see if that is a, a reasonable strategy. Uh, for those of you that are interested, I'm just going to give our plug. Uh, SIDP just recently released an article in our column on Contagion Live that does talk about linazolid TDM for those listeners that are interested in a little bit more of those, those details. All right. Well, I personally feel so much better equipped to speak on the current state of PGAI management as a result of our discussion today, uh, particularly when I'm talking about, you know, the setting of a retained source, because these are some of the toughest infections that we treat. I really thank you both for joining me today. And I thank you, our loyal audience, for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. I've been your host, Julianne Justo, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Nico Cortez-Penfield and Dr. Laura Certain. Breakpoints was created by Aaron McCurry, Jason Pogue, and myself. This episode was produced by Rachel Britt and Jillian Hayes. It was edited by Mary Catherine Vance and peer-reviewed by Kelly Hannon and Amar El Ghali. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafante. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary, and our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.